Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello, Arizona. Welcome to the Logitimate Podcast with your hosts, Mike and Rochelle Poulton, where we share our logitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Poulton. I'm the managing partner of Poulton & Naroyan, a business law firm here in Phoenix. Uh, I'm a litigator, real estate investor, inventor. I do some other stuff. Uh, I, I always have some good projects going on, business and otherwise. And this is my lovely wife, Rochelle. She's the managing partner at the Arizona Credit Law Group, X Firm, and a few other businesses. She does uh, consumer debt and credit law, helping people solve their financial issues and get back on the right track. Rochelle, you want to talk a little bit about yourself? I'm awesome. And welcome to Legitimate. (laughs) Today's topic, we've got a good one. We're going to cover buying and refinancing Arizona real estate. And we have a really awesome guest with us, Julie J. Doyle with Fairway Independent Mortgage. She is such a professional and an all-around awesome person. So we'll hear from her in a little bit. But first up, we've got the Rackets. So this week, Brackets, we're going to talk about travel insurance. So a lot of people still want to travel and go on vacation. And so they're purchasing travel insurance to avoid losing out and being out of pocket for having to cancel trips due to coronavirus or travel bans or whatever. And what people are finding, according to the BBB, is that 60, there has been 1,500 complaints about travel insurance since March. And 67 point something percent of them have to do with travel insurance not covering cancellation costs. Um, So a lot of these uh, Airbnbs or vacation rentals by owners, a lot of those companies, you know, they'll sell you the travel insurance, but they don't tell you that uh, if you cancel your trip due to coronavirus, that you're just out the money. So we wanted to talk a little bit about why that is. And that's because sometimes these pandemics are just specifically excluded from your travel insurance policy, but also they only cover known unknown events. And unfortunately, coronavirus at this point is to be expected. The bottom line is that insurance doesn't exist to cover expenses that you know you're going to have. Uh, and this is part of the reason that health insurance in this country is so expensive. And we've talked about that on a few other occasions. And it's something that I keep bringing up. Health insurance is unlike every other kind of insurance because with health insurance, you expect to have claims. You expect that the insurance is going to be paying out a bunch of money for you regularly. Well, obviously, your premiums can't be less than the anticipated cost that will be paid out on the policy. Well, it's the same with travel insurance. If the expectation is that you're very likely to have to cancel your trip and that's going to cost a whole bunch of money and the insurance is going to have to pay out on that policy, then it's going to be pretty expensive insurance or they're just going to have to exclude all that stuff from coverage because they can't be paying out more on average on these policies than what people pay in the premiums for them. And if you've ever looked, travel insurance is dirt cheap. Uh, it's so cheap that even if you think it's not a good policy and you're probably not going to use it, you might as well pay for the travel insurance because you never know what might come up. You know, for 20 bucks or 50 bucks, you may be able to get good insurance for a pretty expensive trip. But that's the catch. If you're paying 50 bucks for the policy premium, obviously the insurer cannot be counting on there being a 20 or 50% chance of having to pay out on the policy due to coronavirus. So when something like this happens, they're going to rely either on existing policy exclusions in their documents, or they will have changed their documents by the time you've scheduled these vacations. 
Now, if you scheduled your vacation before coronavirus hit and you bought the insurance then, then you may be in a better position. But if you're scheduling a new vacation during the pandemic, you cannot possibly really be expecting that you can buy insurance that's going to cover a cancellation of your trip due to the very pandemic that's currently occurring. Not going to happen. So if you think you're getting coverage that covers it, check really carefully because it probably Read doesn't. Read the fine yeah. print. <laughs> if you were the insurer, you would not be issuing that policy. So so think carefully about whether or not they really are. <laughs> yes. So... It's probably not going to cover you. <laughs> So travel insurance really isn't a racket, but I feel like a lot of people think it is. So just make sure you read your policy uh, when you're booking. And um, sorry if you're losing money. There really isn't a whole lot anyone can do. It's sort of like home warranties. Yes. You know, it's really cheap coverage that you can't count on. You're you're probably going to have problems with a major claim. But but since it's so cheap, you (laughs) might as well probably do it with the expectation that it's it may not be something you can really hang your hat on. Yeah, it's okay. So the real problem, I think, with obviously not being able to get your money back is people who are booking these trips but are asymptomatic just go. (laughs) Yeah. Um. You know, if you're out a few thousand bucks, you know, but you're feeling all right and you're thinking that you're just going to keep away from others while you're there. People end up taking trips knowing they're sick, and that's how it spreads. So FYI, that happens. So stay safe. Anyway, (laughs) on to the LBL moment, our law, business, and life. um, Law, business, and life. So uh, in law, we're going to talk a little bit about the Beirut explosion. This is obviously a major disaster. It was headline news worldwide. Uh, It's very uncommon for things like this to happen. But um, one of the things I do besides law is I'm a professional pyrotechnician, and I've actually been working with explosives professionally longer than I've done anything else in my career, uh, dating back to very early in my life. Um, Been doing professional fireworks displays and special effects using commercial explosives for a long time. And so I've got a fair bit of knowledge and experience on the topic. And a few things stuck out to me about the Beirut explosion. And one of them from the first time I saw the video was that looked like a giant ammonium nitrate explosion um, of the type that has happened in the past. Um, Over the last hundred years or so, there have been a number of incidents like this that have been this size or about this size. And the results are similar every time. It's incredibly devastating to the, the cities that it occurs in. And a lot of them have been at ports where ships are unloaded with lots of ammonium nitrate. 1947, it happened in Texas City in the United States, and it was very similar to this. So you might be wondering, why the heck is this still happening in 2020 if we've had upwards of a dozen major explosions and five or six that have been pretty much this big and this devastating? How does this keep happening? Well, we're starting to see uh, why this occurred in Beirut. And The bottom line is it's administrative and judicial incompetence appears to be the underlying cause of this incident. Everybody knew the risks associated with bulk ammonium nitrate. It's complicated and not worth getting into on this podcast because there's a lot to talk about in terms of explosives chemistry there. Geeking out. Uh, Geeking out on a lot of explosive chemistry stuff and the reasons why ammonium nitrate is not really considered an explosive. It's not, and it's not regulated as an explosive. But yet these things still happen. Sometimes it blows up. So why did the authorities allow this all to be stored at that warehouse? Well, where did it come from? It came from a ship that was transporting it elsewhere. 
And during its journey, uh, they ran out of money. They had financial and contractual difficulties with the chartering people and the owner of the ship. And the captain brought it into port in Beirut, uh, partly because they didn't have the money to continue and partly because they wanted to take on additional cargo so they could fund the rest of their journey. Well, they got there and the boat was in terrible condition and the crew was very upset. They weren't getting paid and didn't have good supplies. And it became a legal case. Uh, there were liens filed against the ship by creditors and the ship was held ju- under a judicial order. Quick uh, uh, intervention yes. here. It was in 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This wasn't recent. <laughs> this was in 2014. Actually, 2013 when it first uh, ended up there. Yeah. So this was a while ago. And the ship got detained under a ship arrest warrant, which is a real thing in maritime court. It was held there, uh, and its cargo was leaned upon uh, by the creditors. And this big legal proceeding ensued. A bunch of the crew was sent home. Only a few people remained on the ship, and their basic needs weren't being met. They weren't getting food and water or medical care, and they couldn't get off the ship in Beirut because of administrative stuff. It was just this bureaucratic nightmare for everybody involved. And the end result was the owners of the ship and the charter company abandoned the whole thing with five and a half million pounds of ammonium nitrate on it. They just said, screw it. This isn't worth it. We owe more than it's worth. Ammonium nitrate is cheap. Beirut, you take it. So then the Lebanese Customs Department and the port authority that ran the dock ended up going to court trying to deal with this ammonium nitrate that they couldn't get rid of. They wanted to send it elsewhere. They ended up unloading it into this warehouse on the dock and just leaving it there in giant bags. There are a few pictures of it. There are all kinds of issues with how it was stored. Uh, It was stored poorly. And then for years, years, the port authority and the customs director were requesting that the maritime court authorize them to sell this stuff, give it to the army, sell it to the army, sell it to an explosives manufacturer, re-export it, just get it the heck out of there. Get it off of our dock because, your honor, we can't have five and a half million pounds of ammonium nitrate sitting in a warehouse in downtown Beirut. Well, those letters were sent and those motions were filed with the court years ago. Years ago. And they didn't act. The court never authorized them to sell the stuff, move it, do anything else with it. And so it's been an administrative bureaucratic purgatory in this warehouse on the ship dock down there for years. And the warehouse wasn't secure. So they sent a crew um, the day of the explosion to do some welding work to fix a door on the warehouse. Fire! And that appears to have been the origin of the fire, which resulted very in bad. the explosion. Very, very bad. Now, you may be thinking, the government's going got to be liable for this, right? You know, hundreds of people likely will end up uh, Declared. dead at the end of this uh, by the time they've sorted through things. Certainly, there are many, many thousands of injuries and literally billions of dollars in property damage. The majority of downtown Beirut is structurally destroyed. So who's liable for that? Well, if we look to the past, uh, the answer likely will be nobody. Because in Texas City in 1947, when the same thing happened, essentially, uh, ships loaded with ammonium nitrate caught on fire and exploded in the harbor, and there were suits against the United States government for allowing these ships to dock there with their dangerous cargo and mismanaging it and everything, uh, the end result was the government was found to be immune from liability. Because these were political and administrative decisions that are within the purview of the government to make, and the risks they take are borne by all of us together. 
And likely that same doctrine will be applied in Lebanon, although I have no idea what Lebanese law is like. Uh, but that general principle that governments get to make bad decisions on our behalf and we all suffer the consequences, that's just how it works. So there's a be high mad. probability that that's how this is going to end up shaking out. Uh, there may be some individuals who end up uh, being held responsible, but in terms of compensation, mm, if it were the United States, chances are everybody would just be screwed. So no, there you don't. go. That is, that's a very lengthy law moment, but I think Such an important one for people to think about. You wonder how disasters like this can occur. Um, it's often pretty mundane bureaucratic BS that results in these sorts of things. And that certainly appears to be responsible here. On to more um, non-fun stuff. You know, we all were hoping that maybe August would, would be better than the rest of 2020. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, business, our business moment. We want to talk about Google AdWords. Yeah. So tons of businesses are figuring out that they need to get back out there, start marketing again. And pay-per-click is huge because if you're online, that's how you get found. But for people who maybe who've been doing Google AdWords for a long time or just getting into it, there's something you need to remember. And that is everyone is flocking to Google AdWords right now. And the cost of marketing online is up. Like if Way you up. had, let's say you hired a company and you pay them seven fifty a month for your marketing campaign, um, you should triple your budget. Your results are not going to be what they used to be. Yeah. Um, mine certainly aren't. Uh, I've experienced this very thing over the last several months. Uh, our firm used to not advertise for business law. Um, we relied only on networking for that. And we were primarily looking for litigation and contingency work at the time. So my advertising had been focused primarily on medical malpractice and not business. Well, now we've pivoted to much more aggressively pushing our business law side of things. And what I've found is the cost of Google AdWords advertising for the appropriate keywords has increased by about a factor of three over the last few months. Um, I've got a third party campaign running that had $700 a month in ad spend going into it. And that's getting me less than a quarter of the engagement now that it did three months ago yeah, uh, for the same ad spend. Uh, and, and the rest of the situation hasn't changed. It's just an increase in competition for those keywords because other people are doing the same thing. They're advertising for these same services. Yep. They're flocking to it. So if you are, you know, if you're a small business owner, you got to be vigilant about your Google AdWords campaign. Absolutely. You know, you can't set it and forget it. It is a dynamic, active situation that you need to stay on top of. If you've outsourced it, you need to make sure that the people that you're paying are staying on top of it. Yes. And um, just be aware that it is a thing. It is ongoing, but it will, of course, simmer down eventually. But Google AdWords is our business tip of the week. If you're not using it, you should use it. But do the cost-benefit analysis. Absolutely. you got to do the cost-benefit analysis. Math. You know, the, for those of you who aren't familiar with it or, or haven't poked around a lot, the cost of using Google AdWords is determined through a continuous automatic auction for the keywords that you're targeting. So the amount that you pay varies from instant to instant, uh, and it can change dramatically during a day. It can change in 30 minutes, and certainly it changes by the week and by the month. So you've got to stay on top of these things and consider that just because someone else is willing to pay a certain amount for a keyword that you think is valuable, that doesn't mean that it's worth it for you to pay that amount. It doesn't even mean it's worth it for the other guy to pay that amount. <laughs> Plenty of people make bad decisions and spend too much on marketing. Don't just follow them. 
Uh, you can easily Skip that. <laughs> easily overspend on ad placement, especially with AdWords. It's real easy to do that. So be careful. Keep in mind that it's much more volatile right now. The pricing of, of AdWords is way more volatile than it has been in the past. Uh, keep an eye on that and be careful. All right. On to life. Yes. Bob and Doug are back home. Our favorite astronauts, our only astronauts who have uh, recently flown, are uh, back on Earth safely. I don't know if you guys watched it, but we had the first splashdown of a U.S. space capsule since probably the 60s or 70s. I mean, it's later than that. 70s, I guess, because the Apollo missions came back uh, by splashdown. Yeah. So It's been a minute. Yeah. And it totally worked. It just totally worked. There was this really like, smoothly. six-minute <laughs> communication blackout where... Yep. I was During really nervous. But they came out <laughs> they of the fine. blackout sooner than expected. Yeah, it was and great. And apparently they could hear us part of the time anyways, even while they were in their plasma bubble. So that was pretty cool. That um, was awesome. So it congratulations, was awesome. SpaceX yes. Dragon. Congratulations, That's SpaceX. That's freaking awesome. Yes. <laughs> worked so really, awesome. really well. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Yep, absolutely. They did like a 24-hour podcast. <laughs> I know it was awesome. Anyway, moving on to our guest, we have with us Julie J. Doyle with uh, Fairway Independent Mortgage. And we're going to discuss what we're here to discuss, which is buying and refinancing Arizona real estate. So let's get Julie back on with us. Hi, Julie. Hello, everyone. Why don't you tell our guests all about, or our listeners, all about your awesomeness? <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I've been here in Arizona lending for 22 years. So I just love the fact that you were like, hey, will you do this? And it's going to be unscripted. I'm like, yes, let's just talk naturally, authentically. Um, I think with everything that's going on, people want to know that. So um, I'm licensed in multiple states, but Arizona is my home. It's where I started lending 22 years ago. Um, I've been with my current company, Fairway, for uh, nine years um, and something that's unique about me is uh, a loan officer who's been in the business 22 years. You, they can typically count about 12 to 15 companies that they've been at. This is my fourth company. Um, so I definitely um, believe in uh, hunkering down and staying loyal, but it starts with choosing the right company up first, up front. So uh, only do residential mortgage lending. We don't touch in the commercial space, although um, I'm a huge geek, as you know. I love to get you know involved in all sorts of things. Um, daily updates on economics, which, you know, as a loan officer, if you're not understanding the economics behind what moves, you really can't advise people properly. So um, that's, yeah, that's me, a, a, a 22 year veteran of mortgages and a big old geek. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. So let's talk about the Arizona real estate residential market right now. It is hot, hot, hot. It is hot, hot, hot. Um, so uh, before we went into the pandemic, pre-pandemic, we were already short inventory, meaning there weren't enough homes out there for people who wanted to purchase, right? So that was before we went in. Um, we were already in what they call a seller's market. And that had been almost a year because we had actually technically been in a real estate recession up until March of 2019. And we came out of it like crazy in March of 2019. And so we'd moved into this and then the pandemic hit and everyone's like, oh, we're stuck at home with these people that we liked, but we liked them from six at night till 10 at night. 
we don't like them from six at night till six at night the next day. So like we need more space, you know, and, and now they're like, oh, there's these kids that we're homeschooling and they need like a desk and a place. We can't just throw them on the couch with an iPad and expect them to learn something. So everyone's like, we need more space. Um, and a lot of people who bought those uh, condos because it was, you know, get rid of everything and downsize was like, Ooh, yeah, we made a downsize a little too much. So we already had, you know, a shortage in homes for sale and a surplus of buyers. And the pandemic really created the space where um, the majority of homes in Maricopa County in Arizona under 400, 450,000 are going up on the market. Um, they're selling the first weekend and they have anywhere between 10 and 18 um, offers on them. So it's definitely um, a very competitive um, market, but it's it's also fun. You know, if you understand the home buying process and you're working with the right people, um, it can be fun and it can really feel like a win um, when you move into your new home. Definitely. I think the biggest frustration uh, for buyers is, you know, they see all these houses, they pick one, they submit an offer, and it's like, yeah, you are in queue line number 15. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's like, the wait time while you hold is, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely happening. Um, and there's there's lots of things you can do to minimize that. And the one thing is a true mortgage plan with a pre-approval. So, People, oh, I went and got pre-qualified. I got online, I plugged my information, I'm pre-qualified. Well, let's talk about a little bit of the difference between a pre-qualification and a pre-approval. A pre-qualification is exactly that. You told the lender your information, they pulled credit, they maybe ran a debt-to-income ratio or not, and they send you out shopping. Um, they haven't done a, a budget with you. What can you actually afford? It, but the bigger piece is it hasn't been... Um, reviewed and run through underwriting. And this is very common. Um, when I speak to clients, I will say, what is your gross pay? And they're like, I don't know. I just know that $1,800 shows up in my bank account every month. Okay. But you know, there's taxes coming out of that. Maybe that expensive uh, medical insurance we were just talking about, or some kind of, you know, um, uh, life insurance, those kind of things come out of your check. Well, you're going to qualify on the gross, not on the uh, net. And so you may have put in that $1,800 a month, but when I look at it, it's really $2,600 a month. I can qualify you for more. Um, so we, we collect all of the information and we actually run it through underwriting and make sure that the information is accurate. And so when you go out to put an offer in, I send you out with a pre-approval, not a pre-call. I can call, you know, or your, your lender, if they actually do the pre-approval part, they can call that listing agent and say, hey, all I need is a property to plug in. And that's going to make a listing agent a little more excited to look at your offer versus the other offer that's just a pre-qualification. They don't know, you know, that loan officer from Adam. They don't know the uh, maybe the agent, you know. And so a pre-approval that I can actually call that listing agent and say, hey, I just need to know, is your property going to appraise? Are there any title issues with your property? Um, and oh no, my property is great. I, I want this one because we can close quick and we know we're going to close. So that's a big difference that can help reduce your competition. And we really call we really call it these days winning the home. It's not just putting in an offer and negotiating anymore. It's winning the home. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. It's like an auction. I've seen some pretty crazy stuff where people are offering more than what it's going to appraise for. And it's, yes. I mean, it's nuts out there. So if you're not doing everything you can, 
<laughs> to stand out, it's it can be a very frustrating experience. So can you walk us through the buying process from the lending side? I know we covered pre-qual and pre-val. Yeah, but but let's talk about what that really looks like and and how somebody does it without pulling their hair out, right? Because a lot of times it's like, oh, what is this? What I find is that most people don't live with paperwork. And so paperwork will stress a lot of people out, right? So I like to do um, a, a 10 minute call where I really get to know um, them, their life and what their goals are. And that seems pretty quick to cover all that, but I've been doing it a long time. And let's face it, most of us are busy and they don't, they don't most people don't really want to talk about finances for more than 10 minutes. Yep. But with that, that's going to help me narrow in on what I what paperwork I need to actually ask them for. So we start with that 10-minute call. And typically, somebody comes to me because they've already spoken to a real estate agent and they've looked online and they think they found their house. And then they're like, what do you mean I can't put an offer in today? You know, so again, what we just talked about, the difference between a pre-call and a pre-approval. And so I'll talk to them and find out, you know, I may not need to see their tax returns. Right. I might just need a W2 or a recent pay stub and a bank statement and an ID. Like it could be that easy. Um, but if you're self-employed, it's gonna take a little more paperwork than that. Um, and so I can, you know, go through the different things. Have you had a bankruptcy? Is this your first home? Do you have a down payment? You know, so we can kind of narrow that all down in those first 10 minutes. I can tell you exactly what I need from you. And you can either, um, I've got the people that love to go online and put their information in themselves. Some people want to give it to me and let me do it, right? So we do that, then I review it. I run it through underwriting so that if there's going to be any snags, we know right now. Um, the biggest thing that drives me crazy, and I hear it all the time, is I found out I didn't qualify for my house two days before we were supposed to close. How? How? I, 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 how? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Unless something happens during that process, somebody loses a job or, as we always tell our clients, please don't go buy a car, a boat, or increase any debt. If you're going to spend more than $50, you need to call me first. Like seriously, like, do you want your house or not? So I just don't understand that. So we get all of that out of the way. And that's what's going to reduce a lot of that home buying stress is that, you know, you're pre-approved. Now that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you for an updated pay stub or bank statement, because it might take you a little bit of time to get a property. But as long as you don't change anything, that approval is going to stand in place and the actual joy of going out and shopping and finding a house and the offer, you're going to be able to actually close um, fun, not ugly. Perfect. So what are the top three mistakes that people make when they're buying a house other than buying stuff in the middle of the process? Right, in the middle of the process, yeah. So I would say um, the, the top thing that people do is... Uh, the number one thing they do is um, they go online and they do their research, which is a great place to do a baseline search. But like with anything, you have to know that's just vanilla advice. So they show up and they think they know what they want. Um, and so they, they, they can do it themselves, right? You can go get crazy mortgage online and do it themselves. Um, and that's, that's the number one mistake because people most of the time actually qualify for more than they think. Do they want to spend it? So the other mistake people make is they don't do a budget. Budgets freak people out. You know, in credit law, budgets freak people out. And so really understanding that a budget is something that's flexible, that gives you actual freedom 
to say yes to that house you didn't think you could um, send. That's that's probably the second mistake that people make is is they is that they really don't do a budget. They don't know how much they can afford. They're like, oh, I've been renting for twelve hundred dollars a month. I can afford twelve hundred dollars a month, and that's it. You know. So we go a little bit deeper um, with that. And then um, I, I the third mistake, which has nothing to do with me, but the third mistake is not using a um, licensed realtor. Um, it is the biggest mistake. People think that they will save money, um, especially if it's a new build. Oh my gosh, do not walk into a new build without representation. Um, you will spend more money. You will not save money. But people think um, that they're going to save money by not using an agent, whether they're buying or selling. And that's just not the case. Um, and I've got all sorts of statistics behind that. But those are probably the three biggest mistakes outside of going and buying a car in the middle of buying a house um, that people make during the lending process that can really or the home buying process that can really send it sideways. You know, I think that's an interesting point. You mentioned people wanting to save money by not using a realtor. You hear about that a lot. Everybody thinks about it. I mean, when you have to pay a commission that's, that's that large out of a transaction, you've got to wonder, am I getting my money's worth out of it? But the bottom line is, yes, you are. Uh, even fairly experienced real estate investors or, or people who've just bought and sold a fair number of houses usually appreciate the value of a realtor's services. They're doing work for that money. And especially on the seller side, it's totally worth it. When you think about how much uncertainty there is in the valuation of a house, the difference between the lowest price it could sell for on the open market versus the highest price it could sell for on the open market, that difference is way larger than the realtor's commission amounts. And the realtors are the ones who make that difference. The seller's agent on the seller's side and the buyer's agent on the buyer's side. They're the ones who are going to get you the deal and make the difference in the amount of that transaction either way. So much like using attorneys in business and in litigation, it may be an expense, but you're paying for somebody's expertise and their professional assistance on something that's very specific to their field. So it's worth doing. Um, Absolutely. The ROI, like you're talking about the ad yeah. words and the ROI, the ROI of using a realtor is it far outweighs the expense. Absolutely. And like you mentioned, there's plenty of data that supports that. It's not a guess. It's just people have analyzed it up one side and down the other. Yep. So what's the common type of loan that people are qualifying for now using or to buy a house? Yeah, you know, it really just depends on where you are. Um, you know, the, the common terms that you'll hear is conventional, FHA, or if you've served in the military, a VA loan, right? VA loans are the last true 100% down, uh, 0%, 100% loan, um, but you have to serve in the military to uh, get that. Um, and then um, there's a bond or grant programs where it's, it's really a down payment assistance loans. And those have changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, so those are those are the things that you look at. Um, I would say that um, they all have their place, you know, and it's so hard to say this is the best loan because a loan is very personalized. And um, and I say this often, if any of my clients get a hold of this uh, video, they'll um, they'll they're like, oh, yeah, Julie said that a loan is like baking a pie. Now, please don't ask me to bake a pie because you don't want to taste it. But it's like baking a pie. If I change one ingredient in that pie, I'm going to change the outcome. So people are like, well, well, back when we were all in the office around the water cooler, well, I was standing around the water cooler and my buddy just got XYZ and that's what I want. Okay, well, 
Your buddy has a different credit score. Your buddy has a different debt to income ratio. Your buddy has a different down payment. Um, recently, mortgage insurance has changed. Your buddy's single. You're married. We can put you both on it. That brings down risk. You know, um, there's there's just all sorts of different things. So I literally could do a loan for myself and do a loan for my neighbor next door and it looked completely different because I've changed one ingredient and changed the outcome of the pie. So um, conventional lending, you can buy your first home with as little as 3% down with conventional lending. Um, it's much harder to get qualified for that loan than it is 5% down. Um, and then um, FHA is as little as 3.5% down. Um, and there's reasons to go FHA. It was originally the first time home buyer program, but that's not the case anymore. Um, and then um, the bond programs, they um, we're going to say gift you uh, your down payment. But the truth of the matter is it's a silent second mortgage that if you sell a refinance in the first three years, you owe a portion of it back. Um, it is a more expensive loan, but it's a great way to get into a home and become a homeowner um, if it's going to take you too long to save up for one of the other ways. And that's you know, um, those are probably like the hottest topics, um, you know, the hottest loans that people know and um, and can qualify for in just the normal everyday, you know, regular human. <laughs> what about investors? What are you seeing with real estate investor activity? Is there yeah. much going on with lending or is that primarily cash right now? No. Um, so, you know, um, there, there's there. There's a program out there that allows investors to get into a residential uh, rental situation with as little as 15% down. Um, it's, uh, it's extremely hard to get into, and the mortgage insurance on that program is extremely expensive. But it, if it belongs in your portfolio of investment, it's a good way to do it. But traditionally, if you have 20% down, um, you can get into the rental market. And what we know is if you... Anybody Googles, you know, um, rent goes up year over year over year. Rent never, ever goes down. Now, it may go up a little bit less than it did the previous year, but it always goes up. So being a landlord, if you can handle everything that comes with that, and that's a different conversation, buying, you know, real estate is a good thing. Here's what we know right now is that um, in the Great Recession of 2008, um, we were creating a lot more renters than we are today. And that was because the millennials were refusing to purchase, right? Whether they could or couldn't, whether they were still living in their parents' basement or whether they were out working, didn't matter. They were refusing to purchase. Um, that scenario has changed. We've, you know, fast forward to 2020 um, and millennials are over 33% of the buying population. Um, and so um, we don't necessarily have... Um, that market to be renters. But what we do have is we have a high immigrant population, um, especially here in the Valley, that needs to rent until they can get their um, their credit score settled and, and maybe their documentation, um, you know, those kinds of things. So um, there's, there's always people who just don't want to own a home, people who aren't meant to be homeowners. And people are like, how can you say that? You've been doing lending for 22 years. I can say that because I've been lending that long. There's right. some people who just aren't meant to be homeowners and, and that's okay. Um, so there's always a great uh, rental market out there. Now, what's different is the Airbnb market. A lot of people rushed into that Airbnb market over the last few years. They made a ton of money. Don't get me wrong, right? Especially here um, in the Valley of the Sun where we are tourist driven and um, they made a lot of money, but they were 
they needed the rent to make that mortgage payment. They didn't necessarily have the backup. So some of those houses needed to go on the market in the last few months because Airbnb was like, ooh, do I want to, when I do go back to traveling, am I going to trust an Airbnb or am I going to trust the hotel? And that's a very personal choice. Um, so I, I have seen clients purchase homes that were previously Airbnbs um, in this tight market. Um, and they're turning them into uh, long-term rentals, what we refer to as a year lease at a time. But buying real estate, uh, you, you just you look back over any period of history and buying real estate is a good deal, especially right now with wh- where rates are. It's ridiculous. It's like free money, people. It's almost like free money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interest rates are good. They're insane. What are your thoughts on where we're headed over the next several months and maybe through the end of this year? Any predictions on what's going to happen with our local market around here? Yep, absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> and just, I, I do that all day long, every day, because uh, it, it just it, it just drives me. So um, we are going to continue to see a shortage of supply of houses, um, which is going to keep our prices up. Um, now, I don't anticipate um, from from 2020 to 2021, we still expect some really great appreciation numbers. You know, we're at about 11 percent from 2019 year to date to 2020 year to date um, as an average here. Um, and so I don't expect to see that from 2020 to 2021, but we still expect to see some really good appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll still see appreciation in the years to follow. It'll just be less appreciation every year. So people who are concerned about their buying at the top of the market, this is a completely different real estate market than it was um, in 2005, 2006, 2007. So that's that's one concern that you can just take right off the table. You're not going to lose you know, equity. Uh, rates are going to remain low and they're probably even going to dip lower in the fourth quarter. Um, even though the numbers just came out for the second quarter, and the second quarter of 2020 is one of the absolute worst fiscal year quarters of the entire history of our country. One of the worst. Um, and so what does that say? Well, if you're at the bottom, you can only go up. So we're already halfway into the third quarter. We see that recovery happening. Um, and through all of that, we have not seen our real estate market slow down. So if we can have one of the worst financial quarters on history and the real estate market not slow down, then we know as we recover, the real estate market is going to keep going because people need to have a job and feel secure in their job in order to purchase. So consumer confidence even during this pandemic, is pretty high. So I don't see prices coming down. I see rates staying really low, um, at least through the end of the year and into first quarter next year. Um, And I really don't see a full economic recovery and what we call a rate burnout, where we'll bottom out um, until probably early 2022. So um, we've got 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 a good year or so to be really busy in the real estate world here in uh, Arizona. I freaking love your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me. I just give it the way it is. If it was ugly, I would tell you it's ugly. <laughs> so let's talk about refinancing and that fun process. Because a lot of people don't want to move. They, But, you know, they maybe have been in their home for 20 years, 10 years, 5 years. And it's like you may have taken out that loan at 8%. And what exactly is the refinance process? Yeah. So, um So I'm going to sidetrack for just a second, because this is a piece that I think everybody is missing out there. And I I talk to clients about this all the time. They call me to refinance. They just assume because of what we've been talking about, because supply is so low and demand is so high and prices are up that they can't afford to move. 
And so typically for a client, I will run, if you refinance, this is what you're looking at. And if you purchase, this is what you're looking at. And most people who've been in their home a while are shocked to find out that they can upgrade they can buy more house or they can buy the house that's been remodeled so they don't have to live through a remodel, right? Um, for the same payment or less that they're making now. So that's the one thing. People think they can't move, that they can't afford to move. But that's why, you know, a true mortgage plan is going to give you all your options. And if refinancing is the right thing, then we can refinance. So how does that process look? Well, if you have enough equity in your home, if you've been in the home a while, if there's enough properties in your neighborhood that have turned over, a lot of times we can completely avoid the appraisal. And people love that because A, that's $500 we're saving them right there. But then they don't have anybody coming into their home during the pandemic, right? If you do have to have an appraisal, um, the appraisers come in, they wear masks, gloves, um, they're wearing booties. And then I give my clients um, advice like open every door in the house so that they don't have to touch anything. And the weirdest one of them all is lift the toilet seats because they need to see that the toilet actually works. Um, that's one of the things that an appraisal. And then that way they don't have to touch anything. Um, you know, they'll socially distance while they're in the home and, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so no concerns over that. We're doing, um, you know, my first time in 22 years where I've got clients I've actually closed that I've never met because um, I can't go to the closing table with them right now, you know, so um, you're giving options on your safety there. But the actual refinance process itself is you call up, um, we go over and we do an analysis of what do you have right now? What are your goals? And how do we align those? How does the mortgage options I'm going to give you and I almost never give clients just one option. Now I am kind of a big sister, so I always give my opinion on which one I think they should go with, but it's their life. They're the one that has to live in the house. They're the one that makes the payment. So I give them their options um, and I clearly lay out you know, the benefits over what they have right now. Um, and you know, there are plenty of people that are still sitting in a 5% mortgage, um, a high force mortgage that really could um, refinance um, and take the benefit of the nice lower rate. Now that's just a rate and term refi. We we lower that rate, um, and maybe if you were in you know a thirty year mortgage and you're ten years in, maybe we put you just in a twenty year mortgage because you don't want to take longer to pay it off. Or you're like Julie, I'm only here another five years. We just want that payment down. We put you into a new thirty year mortgage. You move in five years, you pay it off. Whatever. Again, that's part of that goal setting. The other mortgage, and it's a little more expensive because. Rate equals risk is a cash out refinance. And this is what everybody's doing who wants to move, but can't or thinks they can or really they love their home, but they need to update, right? So there's so much equity in the property and you can get it at such a cheap rate that you go in, you pull up to 80% of the equity out and you redo those kitchens, you redo the floors. You, um, I've got clients that will go into the house and take out cash and, you know, maybe they're taking the cash out at three and a half percent, but they're putting it in the market and with a good financial advisor, you know, again, you can look at any 10 year period in the stock market and the average rate of return is well over 7%. Well, if I'm paying three and a half percent for that money and yeah, I'm gonna have some taxes when I, on the gain, but this might be something I can afford to do. Um, so sometimes that's why they want to take the, the refinance money out. Um, I also advise that with rates so low, um, you refinance because you can. You don't know next year what's going to happen. And cash is king. So if you can go in, pull the cash out of your house and just put it, pretend it doesn't exist, 
if you do lose your job, if somebody gets sick, if there's an emergency, it's always when you need the money that you can't afford to get it out of your house. So um, sometimes we'll do that with a cash out. Sometimes we'll do that just with a, um, I'm going to throw a new term at everybody, a home equity line of credit. That's a different thing than what we're talking about. But, um, and there's better, and there's reasons to have home equity lines of credit, even if you don't want any cash out of your house. Um, good legal reasons that you guys can talk about. But um, those are, that's what's really going on in the refinance world. And I will tell you that up until the pandemic, I was closing refinances in under 30 days, not a problem. Um, and then everybody in the world wants to refinance. So it's taking longer to get title. It's taking longer to get those appraisals underwriting. So I'm, I'm just setting clients up, to, you know, 60 days. If it happens a little before that, that's okay. But um, I'm not going to um, stress my staff out who's already working seven days a week um, so that we can close you in 50 days versus 60 days. It makes no difference in your life, you know, um, unless it does. If there's there's a reason, then we can push it. But that's that that's one of the changes with the refinances. We were closing them like they were candy up until the pandemic. That takes a little bit longer right now. But people are saving $400 a month sometimes. Yeah, it's quite a bit, especially if you're getting rid of like private mortgage insurance or something like that. It makes all the difference in the world. I have a question about those people who, you know, we are in a pandemic and sometimes people get divorced, you know, mm-hmm. moves out and you want to get them off the title. And the best way to do that is to refinance or sell. So if you're going to refinance, let's say, you know, you just may have bought the house this year, you just right. refinanced this year, but you're going to refinance again in like six months. Is that even an option? It is. And I, um, I work with a lot of divorce clients. I have two cases going right now that are, they're in the middle of their divorce and, um, they're both being, um, equitable and, and trying to be collaborative together versus going to court and fight it out. And so we're trying to keep one spouse in the house and try to buy the, the, uh, house for the other spouse, right? And sometimes that, that takes some planning, especially if either spouse is self-employed. Um, that might take a little bit of planning. So it may make sense to refinance now and remove a spouse. It may make sense to wait a few months, um, maybe get into the next tax year, that kind of thing. So we look at that. We look at long-term um, you know, planning. I, I have one right now that she wants to stay in the house um, and financially until she files next year's taxes, she's just not gonna qualify. But he can't afford two houses on a debt-to-income ratio. So he's going to go buy a house with a co-signer. She's going to refinance him off next year. And then he's going to refinance off his um, co-signer next year. So that takes a lot of planning, right? Step-by-step, we need to forward plan those, those qualifications and how it's going to look and make sure that they understand what not to change in the next six months so the plan can work um, and kind of step them through that. Um, and then um, I've got another one right now that we're just waiting until next year. Um, it's going to save everybody money. I'm not worried about rates going up. We just talked about that. Um, so instead of refinancing them now and refinancing them next year, we're just going to wait until next year. So that's that really takes some mortgage planning. Um, divorce attorneys um, are so good at what they do. It is a very difficult law to practice. But what I'm I will say with a blanket statement, which will get me in trouble, is most divorce attorneys don't understand credit and they don't understand um, mortgages. And so I work with them during the divorce to make sure that what they're agreeing to can actually happen on the other end. Um, I have a gentleman that um, it took about a year to make it happen, but he didn't know me. He didn't have good counsel. Um, and three years ago, he agreed that he would refinance his home or sell it within two years. Well, he was self-employed. 
um, and he didn't qualify for his home. And his ex-wife went to court to force him to sell. The house was listed. Um, I came in with a plan um, that I uh, turned over to the court and they allowed us to hold off sale for six months, refinance the house off. And he got to keep the home that he had built um, years ago before they were even married. So um, yes, if you are going through a divorce, know somebody who's going through a divorce, make sure that your agent is using a mortgage planner to help in the process. Or if you're doing a collaborative divorce on your own and you don't have attorneys involved, you need to reach out to um, a true mortgage planner that can help you through that. But it's definitely possible to remove that spouse and or that not remove the spouse and the spouse buy another house. Sometimes that's what we do. But yeah, it's a, it's a huge um, piece that um, I think people want to do right, but that they mess up because they just don't know. I think your point about divorce attorneys not necessarily understanding uh, mortgage finance is important. It goes well beyond just divorce attorneys. Um, Most attorneys don't really understand the dynamics of these deals well enough. We all learn it in law school, but not in very much detail. Not the practical part of it. Yeah, not the practical part. You can read your contract. Exactly. (laughs) In the documents, you know, any attorney reading the documents is going to be able to figure out what the meaning of it is. But that's very different than understanding the practical dynamics of how mortgage finance works. And especially because Arizona primarily uses deeds of trust, uh, which have some legal nuances that are pretty important. And those are things that we really didn't cover in law school in much detail, unless you took those elective classes because you're into real estate. We both did. uh, (laughs) A lot of attorneys just aren't into that stuff. And so you can end up with business law attorneys, general litigation attorneys, people who just are, are helping somebody out with some kind of a legal problem, and it ends up involving real estate that has a deed, um, you know, a deed of trust on it. They can end up really Screwing making some up. bad assumptions and working from some misunderstandings that result yeah. in bad outcomes. So getting somebody like you involved is very important. And, and to the audience, I would say, be wary of trusting a general practice attorney to get those nuances right without having some other professionals involved. It doesn't mean don't trust your attorney, but it does mean make sure that they really understand that aspect of whatever your deal is. If you've got a deal that involves that sort of thing, yeah. um, make sure that you're working with somebody like Julie. And that's the other thing. Julie, of course, knows the day-by-day dynamics of what loans are getting approved and how long it's taking and what the different interest rates are. This stuff changes all the time, continuously changes. So daily. Yeah, daily. Yeah. Guidelines change daily, people. (laughs) Exactly. So even an attorney who may understand the dynamics of a transaction very well and all the implications of the transaction, when it comes right down to advising you on what kind of a loan you're going to be able to get today, what your options are, we attorneys don't do that. You you need someone like Julie to do that. I refer you out. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's complicated, and I don't want to yes. learn it. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't because, we don't again, do it every it's day. Part of doing it every day, you need someone who's in that industry. <laughs> Yep. I'm not, I'm not going to go operate on myself. I'm not going to give myself legal advice, right? Yep. Don't do your own loan. Say, say no to doing your own loan. Yep. Don't make assumptions about what your loan options are. You know, don't yeah. make assumptions about what you can or can't get done mm-hmm. without making sure that you've got somebody in the loop right now to tell you the status today of what the market is. Yep. So real quick, if you guys could um, talk a little bit about the difference between using a company like Fairway versus like a big bank. 
you know, because yeah. people just want to go to their bank and apply for a loan. And it's like, well, it's been six months and I haven't heard anything. Like, what's <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's, there's three real uh, types of way that you can um, get lending. One, you can go to that big box bank that you just mentioned, right? Um, and they will have, um, you know, fairly good rates, fees, you know, hopefully not too expensive, you know, and they will take probably um, four to six months to close your refinance. Um, and that purchase that you won the house because you wrote a 30-day close, they will blow that close of escrow date and possibly cost you the house and or your earnest money. Plain and simple. You can call any real estate agent um, and they will tell you that. Like I, agents will beg their clients, please don't use big box bank XYZ because you could possibly lose the home. It's just what it is. They're, they're set up um, for numbers, not people, right? Um, but I mean, I have a checking account. I have a bank. I, I love them for what they are, but mortgage lenders, they are not. You can get a mortgage there, but they are not. The second I don't thing- I to track you too much, but I think there's an important point that people ought to remember here about buying a house with financing. When you commit to buy a house, you go under contract- but you have a financing contingency. So it says, I can get out of this deal if I can't get a loan for it. Very often, most of the time, vast majority of the time, you will be able to get out without losing your earnest money because the earnest money uh, loss kind of has an exception to it. And the exception is your loan doesn't get approved. But here's the catch. The seller is under no obligation to give you more time. They do not have to let you extend closing. If your loan can't get closed on the date that you originally committed to buy that house, uh, they, the seller has the option of telling you to screw off. They've got other people with offers pending, and they're going to go with somebody who knows how to get a deal done. In some real estate markets, that's not going to happen. You'll be able to extend closing repeatedly, and it can take several months maybe to get the deal done. Not today, not here, not now. (laughs) That's true. Um, And then the other thing that people need to know is that um, in the state of Arizona, when you sign your real estate contract, you actually contractually obligate your lender to that contract, even though I've never signed anything. Mm -hmm. I am contractually obligated to time is of the essence. The big banks don't care. What are you going to do to them? They don't care. So um, the second one is a broker. Um, a broker is someone who, um, it, you know, they're the middleman and they, um, they'll go out and they'll shop the loan around and they may find you a really low rate, but their fees are going to be really expensive. Or they may find you a higher rate with really low fees, but you're going to pay it somewhere. Okay. Because they're a middleman. So not only does the bank need to make money, you know, the, the, the actual lender, I'll not use the word bank, but the broker needs to make money. And who pays for that? The consumer. I mean, you know, where else would it come from? So, so that's a broker. And there are times to broker alone. There's times to use a broker, but in general, most people don't need to use a broker. And then there's the mortgage lender, which is what Fairway is. Um, and there's different steps of a mortgage lender, um, but we are one of the largest privately held mortgage companies. We sell directly to Fannie, Freddie, Ginny, which means we have no additional um, what we call guideline overlays. So Fannie Mae's guidelines... If you meet the guideline, you get approved for a loan. Whereas the banks, the brokers, and some of the correspondent lenders, they add their own rules in there. You're like, why? Well, because of risk. And that's a whole different story. But for us, we're, we're just, if this is the Fannie Mae guideline, if this is the Freddie Mac, if this is Ginny Mae's guideline, we're not adding anything to it. 
because we sell directly, I can give you the best rate and the best fees available. An example that just happened this week, I had a client um, referred to me a couple of weeks ago. They're getting married. They're young. They want to buy their first house. She's all excited. Um, she's doing it all herself. Her fiance hasn't hopped on board yet. We start down the process. She finally gets her um, process uh uh, her uh, fiance in the process. And he goes, Oh, I'm just going to go to my big box thing. I said, okay, let me at least review what they tell you once they do it. So they get a prequal, they plug their information in, they kick it back for this client, five and a quarter for an interest rate, paying an eighth of a discount. Their general fees are a thousand dollars higher than I, than mine is. And I gave them that exact same loan for $2,000 less in fees at 2.75%. So the big <laughs> thing had them at five and a quarter and I'm giving them the rate at 2.75. Do you know how much more home they can purchase at 2.75 than they put at five and a quarter? A lot. Yeah. That five and a quarter, why are they doing that? Because they can call them in six months and say, let's refinance. Let's send the money. With 2.75, they're never going to refinance that loan, right? So yeah. So there's, there's just one huge reason, timing, but money. Love it. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for being on our podcast, Legitimate. This was fun. The Legitimate Perspective on Refinancing and Buying Real Estate in Arizona. So why don't you tell everyone how they can reach you? Okay. So um, easiest way, uh, you, you can call me, um, 480-206-8742. That is my cell phone number. But if I don't pick up, it'll roll to the office. Yes, I just gave you all my cell phone numbers. So you can text as well. Um, and then you can also hop on my web um, site. It's uh, juliefairway.com. There's no E at the end of Julie. So it's just J-U-L-I-F-A-I-R-W-A-Y.com. And uh, you can reach out to me there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julie. And today's show is brought to you by XFIRM, helping people recover from financial crisis with credit repair, credit advice, and debt resolution. You can find us online at xfirmlaw.com or you can give us a call at 480-305-0603. On today's show, we covered a lot. Uh, we talked about, of course, travel insurance, the reasons to beware of purchasing it. Maybe you should get it because it's cheap, but don't expect it to cover much like a pandemic. Uh, remember, ammonium nitrate is extremely dangerous and volatile. Like, just don't store it forever. Come on. <laughs> um, marketing with Google AdWords uh, is great, but uh, vigilance, constant vigilance is required. And we geeked out about the success of the SpaceX Dragon mission. Uh, congrats again. And of course, with Julie J, we discussed all of the fun pitfalls and success stories of refinancing and buying Arizona real estate. Um, and if you actually are considering it, you should definitely consult with a pro like Julie J or consult with Julie J specifically. I re refer her business <laughs> for years because she is awesome. She really is, uh, as good as she sounds live. <laughs> well, thank you. This is great. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm Mike Polton with the law firm Polton and Royan. I do business consulting, litigation, and business law here in Arizona. Uh, you can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro, that's pnlaw.pro, uh, or give us a call at 602-427-5613. And I'm Rochelle Poulton, your co-host with XFirm Law. You can find us online at xfirmlaw.com. And thank you to Phoenix Business Radio X as always. And we will talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.